0: We're going to be reading uh, Revelation chapter two verses eight through 11. If you want to join or just listen. And to the angel in the church of Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Thank you, Lord. Father God, I just thank you again for your guide to life, your sacrifice, That has enabled us as a people, as your children, with so many things from heaven already. Let us miss none of it. Let us be open to your teaching today through our pastor. Let us receive it. Let us apply it. And let us draw nearer to you. Thank you, Lord. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.
1: On. I was thinking maybe um, maybe it'd be a bad form to flip the Girl Scout cookies over in the in the lobby. Just just toss the whole thing. <laughs> Is that that form? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, you want some Samoa's for communion? Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh boy. Welcome to Union if you're new here. <laughs> um, Okay, we have the second church in uh, the uh, seven churches, Smyrna, and uh, you know one of the, the facts that I have often found uh, fascinating about Christianity is its embrace of, of paradox, and I, I apologize if uh, I'm being a bit redundant. I know that's a bit of a drum that I beat, but it's um, interesting to me that Christianity embraces the idea of paradox. Uh, In fact, um, I have a a beautiful and poetic quote from Jen Pollock Michel that uh, profoundly kind of um, emphasizes this point. And she says we must remember the paradox of grace. The gospel announces both leniency and violence, mercy and judgment Rescue and death. What blazes up on Golgotha is God's embrace of contradiction. Weakness as power, foolishness as wisdom. I think a real beautiful way to look at the complexity that is the gospel. And I begin with this thought because Christ's communication to the church in Smyrna highlights Um, some really counterintuitive ideas. Ideas that when you're first um, presented with them, they they really don't resonate, they they might not register, and they certainly don't make sense. They're ideas that if you consider them from a cultural analysis, and specifically self-preservation, they simply don't add up. You see, according to Jesus, as he communicates to the church in Smyrna, he states these two very odd-seeming ideas. He says the, the poor are rich, and he says death is a win. He says the poor are rich, which does not make sense in our capitalistic society, and he also says that death is a win. Poor or rich, death is a win. We'll start with a former idea. To begin with, Jesus tells the church in the letter to the Smyrnians that, uh, I know the pain that you're going through, and and I know your poverty, but then he parenthetically adds, but you are rich. This church is going through... A terrible time, and they're about to embark on an even more terrible time. And Jesus says, I know um, these things are happening, but you are rich. Why were they poor to begin with, and why does Jesus say that they are rich? That's kind of the beginning of what we'll be covering here. And to know the answer to that, uh, to know their poverty, is to know something about the social order in Smyrna itself. You see, Smyrna was a really large, really wealthy city. It rivaled Ephesus. And I think the important tidbit is that it was probably among all the cities that we're reading about in these letters, was the most loyal uh, to Rome. The Roman statesman Cicero said that uh, Smyrna was the most faithful of our allies. And the ancient historian Tactus explained how Smyrna was the very first city in the Republic to erect a temple to the goddess Rome. He also uh, added that in the third decade of the first century, Smyrna competed, uh, competed for and they won the privilege to build a temple to Tiberius, Livia, and the Senate because of this sustained loyalty to Rome. Now, the reason this is relevant, and the context is important, is that Smyrna, you see, they required their citizens to actually worship the emperor. They actually, they, 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 they actually had them um, actually you know, go out to the magistrates and sign certificates that would demonstrate loyalty to Rome. And they would go so far to, to write on a certificate that they would in fact worship the emperor. Um, And this was one of the ways Rome and Smyrna kept track of all of its citizens. And obviously this raises some really interesting ethical questions for Christians who have sworn exclusive allegiance to Jesus Christ. Right? You can see that there's a conflict of interest there. And then um, you know from actually the text that apparently There were Jews within the community who were quick to exploit this this ethical dilemma that the Christians were facing in their community. Now for even more great Bible um, history, uh, let me me read some stuff from G.K. Beale, because he gives us a really quick and concise perspective of of what's happening within their society. He says... From what we know of late first century Asia Minor, we can speculate about uh, how these Christians were being persecuted. Until the latter part of the first century, uh, Christianity enjoyed a degree of protection under the umbrella of Judaism, which was tolerated by Rome. The Jews were not forced to worship Caesar as a god, but allowed to offer sacrifices in honor Of emperors as rulers and not gods. So there was a there was a loophole that they found. But after the Neronian persecution, Christianity came under suspicion, since new religions were not acceptable in the empire. And Jews, who sometimes had no qualms in semi-revering other deities along with their Old Testament God, often were only too willing to make the Roman authorities aware that the Christians were not part of a Jewish sect. Perhaps Jews were motivated to inform on Christians because they were irritated that some of their Jewish brethren or Gentile godfarers were converting to Christianity. You see, what was happening was there was probably a lot of anger that Christianity was growing. And um, And there wasn't a distinction made between Christians and Jews at the time. And of course, some very helpful people uh, made sure to make that distinction very clear. Now what made it really challenging for the Smyrnian Christians is that uh, Christians obviously no longer being able to be concealed under the umbrella of Judaism. they, They refused to worship the state. And any other god, for that matter. I think there's a lot in there for today's current uh, climate and culture. What are we going to worship? But because they would not worship the state, because they refused to, for emperor worship, because they, um, they refused to embrace all the ideology of Rome, they were forced into poverty. They were forced into the margins of society. So what we know contextually about these Christians is that their decision to follow Jesus had a, um, had a dramatic impact on their wealth. They, many Christians went from having things to, to not having things. And that happened rather quickly and abruptly. And I think it's fascinating. I don't, I don't know I think it's fascinating, that all this is happening within the community, and in spite of all this, Jesus says, but you're rich. I don't know. I don't know how that settled for everyone, but if if you're talking to me, um, and you can ask John, I'm a bit of a curmudgeon. I'm a bit of a complainer, and I I would say, well, that's nice, uh, Jesus, but I I need a bologna sandwich, too. I have to be totally honest with you. When I think through this particular thought, this counterintuitive, paradoxical thought, it actually is a bit triggering for me, to be honest with you. You see, I grew up um, pretty poor, Um, Not, probably not Smyrnian poor, but, uh, but poor nevertheless. Six people in a tiny two-bed, one-bath. John can corroborate all this. Um, My mother was constantly worrying about whether or not we were going to be able to keep on the utilities. So growing up, it was just this constant worry and concern. You know, are the lights going to be on? Can I pay the gas bill? You know, all those things. Um, you know, we had the white boxes of government-stamped cheese, the whole thing, right? You've heard the government cheese? Like, I grew up on government cheese. Probably not Smyrnian poor, but, but poor. And here's the thing. Here's why it's a bit triggering for me, because I would often lament, and what I mean by lament, as a little kid, I would often complain A lot because I've been consistent with my curmudgeon attitude from childhood all the way to adulthood. Um, I'd be consistent with with my complaining nature, and I'd often lament and complain to my mother about being poor. I say, Mom, I hate being poor. And she'd say, Yeah, we're we're poor, but we're we're rich in love. And I'd say, Mom, this is that's just the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Uh, mom, you're dumb. Like, that's, that, that's, that's what I would think in my head, and I would even verbalize it, because I was an outspoken child uh, as well. Some consistent things. The things have been consistent in my life. Um, outspokenness. But you know, I was thinking about it on the other side of God's grace uh, being richly poured out into my life. Uh, uh, I'm thinking it, about it now in light of what I know about the gospel and the, the goodness that flows down from the kindness of Christ. And as I, you know, kind of cleared some of that, that past stuff, I was able to really, um, really register and agree with my mother um, so many years later down the road. You see, although I didn't believe it at the time, now I can, say, I can say that the glue God used to keep us together in the midst of poverty was, in fact, the unsearchable riches of Christ's love. I mean, the only reason we didn't kill each other in that tiny house was the grace of God over our life. And I have found that even though it's paradoxical and counterintuitive, it is true that the poor can be rich. One of the greatest gifts God has given me in this short life of mine is seeing the church on a much larger scale. In other words, I've been able to see the global church operating for the past for for the past 20 plus years of my life. And I have found and it's not always the case, but I have found that it, often around the world in the most impoverished places you find the most joyful content people in life and i have recalled the time and time again in those contexts when i lived in you know i when i lived in a a slum i'm saying who's actually winning here you know who is actually rich in these in these moments of course this is This is what happens when God gets a hold of a life. It's possible to be poor and rich at the same time. This is, in fact, what Jesus broadcasts in the Beatitudes. Chapter 5, verse 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Paul, he shrinks it down by saying to the Corinthians, Having nothing yet possessing everything. So you have nothing, but you possess everything. What Jesus does in a life that really understands his goodness and grace is he changes the way wealth is evaluated. And he can actually transform even the most poor and destitute man. That's what I love about the true gift and the true goodness of the gospel, is the gospel doesn't offer to just immediately change your circumstances. No, it, it promises to transform your inner man, your perspective and your peace around your circumstances. The gospel promises to actually impact you to such a degree that your circumstances won't be the ultimate dictating factor of your life. Because the goodness of God is always and ever present. But this is what Jesus does. He changes the way wealth is evaluated, and so he tells a poor group of Christians who are about to be persecuted even further, he tells them that they are rich. And I think it's really important to contrast what Jesus is saying to the seventh church, Laodicea. John will teach that in in several weeks, but Notice when you get there, when Jesus discusses Laodice- La- Laodicea, he notices and notes that they're rich, that they're wealthy. But he tells them that they are, they are poor in his own eyes. Now, I don't want to steal uh, John's teaching there. And I know you're raising your eyes like I'm doing that. I'm just, just touching the fringes of it, okay? Relax, relax, brother. Uh, <laughs> um But notice that. In fact, when you're preparing your heart to read uh, about Laodicea, look at the contrast there. It's fascinating. But I think it ultimately brings us to a place of asking ourselves, do we value what Jesus values? Because that is what's going to change our perspectives on what really makes one rich. Because I tell you what, there is a, we have a lot of voices, loud voices, big voices, telling us what makes us rich. But is it Jesus' voice? Because Jesus obviously has different criteria. Jesus obviously has a different idea when it comes to that. And before I move on, may we also remember that not every wealthy church is poor and not every poor church is, is wealthy. And I think we should ask ourselves why that is. Why is that maybe good conversation for gospel communities this week? Not every wealthy church is poor. Not every poor church is wealthy. Why? Why? Why is that? Now, as difficult as that question is, and I think it is, a challenging one to wrap our minds around. I think it really pales in comparison to the next idea that Jesus presents these people. Because he goes from telling them that uh, that the poor can be rich to telling them that death is actually a win. Again, not another thing that we are readily um, able to process and comprehend. How how does death become a win? You see, the the Smyrnians received a message from Jesus that, um, quite frankly, I think many of them dreaded. Because he tells them that their suffering is going to get worse. In fact, he tells them that Satan is going to throw them into prison. And for ten days, probably hearkening back to the days of Daniel... Because this is all, the, the, the only idea of, of martyrdom that these people have in their minds is, it goes all the way back to, to Daniel. The, Jesus is telling them that they're going to suffer persecution, and some of them even to the point of death. And Jesus encourages them to endure, and ultimately, they'll win the crown of life. In other words, they're they're going to be granted an award that would typically be given to someone who has won the the race or received the prize, competed in an exercise. And Jesus tells them, even even though they perish, they will not be hurt by the second death. And again, I I don't know how you process things, but I'm more of a if if I'm if I'm any of the disciples in the gospel accounts, I'm definitely Thomas. I know I know you. Um, John's um, John thinks he can do anything. He's probably Peter. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm I'm more of a I'm more of a Thomas. Because I'm you give me this information that doesn't compute, and I'm immediately going to dismiss it. I'm going Im- to immediately be. Um, uh, cynical and skeptical around the thing. So if I'm Th- I'm like Thomas, I, I I am when they tell me that Jesus is alive, I'm gonna I'm I'm simply gonna say, well, I don't believe it because I haven't seen him, and you probably have been smoking something. <laughs> that's that's what I'm thinking. Um, and, and, and in fact, just like Thomas, I'm gonna say I'm not gonna believe until I see him in the flesh and the wounds on his body. And here's the gift that Jesus gives to people, skeptics like me, as he gives evidence. So that we can shout, my Lord and my God. And I'm thankful for that. But I wonder how this message of impending suffering and potential death was met with the church. It couldn't have been with enthusiasm and perhaps with a little bit of terror. Because it is an affront to the intellect to think that dying in such a terrible way can actually be a win. That it can actually be a win. And this particular passage is very, very challenging to us because not only in this place, but many other places, God is telling us that that if we're really going to gain life, we're going to have to lose it. If we're really going to know God in, in a greater way, He's going to have to increase, but that means our decrease, right? In other words, not only is uh, the potential in persecution a, a like actual perishing in death, but the Christian life, in a nutshell, is a series of small deaths over a long period of time, if you know anything about sanctification, right? Saying you no, know, primarily to ourselves, and and, I, and and John and I didn't um, coordinate this, but I think that's why that book by Keller, um, the freedom of self-forgetfulness, is probably a great companion to this particular passage of Scripture. You see, Scripture makes much of the language of uh, either either large death or tiny deaths over a long period of time in sanctification. I'll give you a couple. One from Peter, chapter 2, verse 24. He says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Galatians, from Paul, chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, But Christ, who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, these are words from lives which have taken on the contours of the cross. Lives that have been shaped by what they have seen and what they have heard from the Son of Man. And it might be paradoxical, but the crucified life is both how Jesus has secured our redemption and has therefore called us to live. And I don't know about you, but I find it fascinating that we are so quick, we're quick and ready to receive the idea of sacrifice and surrender, even death on a cross, for our redemption. Like, yeah, Jesus, go for it. I receive that, embrace that. But how few of us are um, ready to embrace death beyond that. Our own personal death lived out of the life that was given for us. And I say that to my shame and stubbornness, really. Because I am such a stubborn, self-willed person. I say, Jesus, I, I love your words around my rescue, I don't always love your words around my sanctification. Jesus, I love you saving, but I don't always want you telling me what to do. Am I the only one? Okay, thank you for that, I appreciate that. Really do. But that's what, I guess in a nutshell, this letter to the Smyrnians is all about. It's it's really about death, ultimately dying for Christ. But it's also, for us Western Christians who really have not faced this kind of persecution, and Lord willing, we may never face this kind of persecution. I think we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to embrace the idea of death? Death to self. Are we we really willing to embrace that? Tiny deaths to self over time as we live before the beauty of of the cross? Um, And ultimately, have we asked ourselves that question? Are Are we that enraptured with the gospel of goodness that we would give the ultimate gift of our own life to stand with Jesus? The history of Smyrna is really interesting because it tells us also that the um, bishop of Smyrna, uh, Polycarp, who was actually discipled by John the Apostle, he ultimately did give his life. He did lay down his life in order to uh, follow Jesus and stand with him. I imagine this the shortest of the letters to the churches was like a sounding gong going off in his mind and his heart as he bravely stood uh, before the, the fires that would ultimately consume him. And really, the question is how does this counterintuitive idea of the rich or the poor being rich and death being a win, how does that actually? come to fruition. How, how, do, how do we actually realize that? Well, it's not, it's not a Buddhist kind of thought where we, where we think really hard and wait and hopefully it manifests itself. No, it's actually having a clear and beautiful and accurate vision of Jesus Christ. You see, that's what Jesus says at the very beginning of this letter. He, he, he refers to them in his own character but he points out particular things that they will need if they're going to be faithful to him to the very end. He calls himself the first and the last, and he tells them he is the one who died and came to life. He tells them, I am the first and the last, and I'm the one who died and came to life. In other words, he's telling them one thing, I'm the Almighty, and another thing, he's saying, I'm alive. I'm the Almighty the Almighty who happened to come to man in the flesh, to die on a cross, and that the resurrection is true, and I am alive. And if you can hold this in your heart, if you can hold this vision of me in your heart, if it can dazzle you enough to pure adoration and worship, then you can be faithful to the very end. And the second death will not have its sting. And I think, really when we slow down and process it for ourselves, I think the test that is issued to the Smyrnian church is actually a test issued for the church at Union as well. Uh, I'll quote Eugene Peterson because he has a real beautiful and concise quote that will help us perhaps drive that deeper down into our hearts a little bit and raise some questions. First one, are you willing to die for your faith? And are you willing to give up anything along the way in order to pursue it? Those little deaths that sometimes seem as difficult as the final one, dying to impulses of ambition, of lust, of pride, of security, of comfort. Here we have one of those paradoxes that are strewn all through the Christian's life of faith. Until we pass the martyr's test, we live neither deeply or widely. Until we are ready to die for Christ, we can't live for him freely, openly, and exuberantly. If we spend all our energies trying to protect our interests, to preserve our safety, to negotiate and uh, compromise with the opposition in order to keep what we have at all costs, we will live meagerly. But if we live at risk, giving up all in witness and commitment and love, we are released from death to live in the power of the resurrection. This is what we see from the from Christ's church all throughout uh, time and history is when it has this beautiful vision of Jesus, they're able able to embrace the resurrected life and see that death to self is not a loss, but actually it's a win which leads to a much fuller life. Peterson would later say we don't get Christ's life without self-death. We don't get Christ's life without self-death. And, you know, when I was reading about the first century church this morning as I was praying about, you know, how to wrap this thing up, and I found it fascinating, the story of Peter and John at the end of chapter 3 of Acts and going into chapter 4 of Acts. You're probably familiar with it because there's a... They're going, they're going to the synagogue like the Jews that they would always have done. And you remember they ran into a guy who was... Um, had an infirmity. He was not able to walk, and he was begging for alms. And it's one of my favorite stories because he, he's saying alms, alms for the poor. I got Monty Python in my head, too, a little bit there, but, but yeah, right? Uh, but, but he's saying he's begging for alms, alms, alms for, uh, for the poor. And I love what Peter turns around and says to him. He looks him dead in the eye, and he says, silver and gold, have I none, but what I do have, I offer you in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise up and walk. And the dude walks. It's radical. Well, that's really cool. But what I find is what ha- happens after the miracle is is really tremendous for me. Most tremendous for me, because they get arrested. They go before. Um, they go before the religious establishment. And they're they are basically asked nicely because Christianity at this point has get, get, gained some serious steam. But at, but at this point, they're, ask, they're, they're simply asked because Caiaphas says, man, if this thing is from God, you're not going to be able to stop it, right? So we should just, you know, we'll tell them to stop stop preaching the gospel, stop talking about this resurrected Messiah. And so they do, they like politely ask them. <laughs> One of the times they politely ask. And uh, they say, hey, just... Hey guys, we'll let you go, but don't preach the gospel. And and then again, Peter says, um, you know, this whether 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 we can surrender this to to you or God is not up to us. If Jesus is alive, like this is my paraphrase, but like we have to we have to preach what we have we have seen and embraced in our hearts. And they go and they they tell all their friends, they tell the church. And the church is rejoicing over this thing. And they go back and they say, We just got a we just caught a, a beating for what we believe in. We got we caught a beating after this miracle. And I find it what, what I find so fascinating is that the Christians they didn't gather and start a political party. Like they didn't they didn't write their congressman and start ch- trying to change laws that would be more favorable for Christianity. They, and they certainly didn't have a, 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 you know, a time of complaint about how hard it was to live in the Roman Empire. That, that really is convicting to me because I would have been the guy complaining about how hard it is to live in the Roman Empire, right? Um, they didn't complain. All they did was pray for boldness that they would be able to continue to embrace this good news and declare it to the rest of the world. That's what they did. That's how they responded to this intense persecution. Not with a bunch of complaining, but prayer for boldness that they would continue to share the good news. That is terribly challenging to our current culture because we are so, you know, we're such good complainers. And, we, and, and now we have all these avenues to complain and get all of our ideas and thoughts out there. And we don't care who hears it, we just wanna get it off our chest, right? But perhaps we should we take a page out of the first century church and the, the true church throughout all ages that have embraced uh, whatever God has brought upon them or, or allowed to come into their life with grace and truth. And it's just that they would preach the gospel with boldness. Do, if you, if you, if you want to know more about the persecuted church, go to a couple... Um, websites, Open Doors, uh, Fox, uh, Voice of the Martyrs, uh, there's, there's plenty out there. And you can get all the statistics on how the global church suffers today. In our particular countries, it is in, in particular places, it is, uh, you are risking your life if, you're, if you step outside with a Bible and head off to a church on a Sunday. I mean, we have a lot to learn but the rest of our brothers and sisters globally. And I'll I'll wrap it up with this. We're going to continue going through these churches, and I want you to notice, this one in Smyrna, and and, uh, and the other one in Philadelphia, they're they're the only churches that Jesus doesn't have a rebuke and a correction for. I don't know about you, that should be really sobering. So one half of what we're going to be talking about over the course of these several weekends, one half of the churches that Jesus does not have a rebuke or a correction for but an encouragement is a church that is going to embrace death. Embrace small deaths or ultimate death, but do so in light and from love of God. That in and of itself should slow us down to, to ask ourselves, are we really embracing the crucified life? Because that is what the Church of Smyrna is asking of us, inviting us to, Jesus is welcoming us into, the embrace of the crucified life. So I'll close with a, a couple questions. Are we self-indulgent people or are we um, self-sacrificing? Am I truly willing to embrace suffering? Am I faithful to Christ, dying the little deaths of my ego that, or or am I holding on uh, to life so dearly and tightly that I can't quite die? That's sort of the question, butchered it a little bit, but, but it's this. Will we embrace the crucified life? Will we em- em- embrace the cross? Will we embrace the, the, the way of Jesus? Or will we continue holding on to our way? Whose way? Whose way? Our way or Jesus's way? Let's pray. God, we love you so much, and we thank you for your grace over the sermon, that it didn't stink too much, and um, and that your truth came through um, by the power of your Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would take the truths that we have received from your Word, and they would drive gently into our hearts that we might be changed and transformed by it and continue to be uh, in on and uh, delighted and, and uh, intrigued. We would embrace these paradoxical ideas that you present to us in scripture. So God, we love you and we um, thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.